0: And elite performers know their timing and their body position intimately well. You know exactly where to position your body to execute a skill. And then when I was in that high-pressure scenario, because of all of the external stuff that was going around, plus my own internal noise, plus already sitting on a base and foundation of high threat, high stress, high pressure, you know, because of the toxic environment. And then I'd get into the pointy end of my performance, you know, that big moment in competition. The changes that would happen to my physicality, my biomechanics would change, my timing would be off, even so slightly, but it was enough that would be the difference between execution and failure.
1: Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Rachel Vickery. Now, Rachel is a human behavior and high-performance consultant, optimizing performance, culture, communication, and resilience in high-pressure, high-stress, and high-stakes scenarios. She consults with professional and elite athletes, coaches and organizations, as well as C-suite execs, trauma and emergency medicine personnel, elite military teams, and tactical professionals. Prior to all of this, Rachel was an elite gymnast on the New Zealand team for six years and also is a practicing sports physiotherapist. Now, honestly, there's a ton of qualifications that I had to leave out in the interest of time, but if you want to know more about Rachel or you want to reach out to her, You can head to rachelvickery.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-V-I-C-K-E-R-Y.com or you can reach her directly via email at rachel at rachelvickery.com. Now, in her own words, Rachel believes that life factors and doing essential prevention and intentional preparatory work away from the environment where performance is needed impacts performance in high-pressure scenarios far more than applying coping skills at that moment. And actually, that's a lot of what we dig into in this episode. We talk about the human threat response, about breathing as a key to performance, about where cycles of failure and spirals of failure come from and how to break them, And really, we dig a lot into this idea that what we do in the time before we're called upon to perform matters so much to what we can do when we do need to perform at our best. If you like what you hear on the podcast and you want to learn more about what we're up to with the Emergency Mind Project, head over to emergencymind.com. That's where you can find access to our newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure, and information about our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. Also, a quick favor to ask of you. I would love some help growing the emergency mind community and getting the word out about what we're up to. So if you like what you're hearing, can you think of one person that might benefit from knowing about the emergency mind project and send this episode to them? I'd really appreciate it. All right. All that said, let's jump in for this awesome episode with Rachel Vickery. I hope you enjoy. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is awesome to see you again. And I'm thrilled to get into this. We had such an amazing discussion at Glimpses. I'm just so psyched to have you here.
0: Dan, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Awesome to reconnect.
1: Can we start, for folks that don't know you, can you give us a brief overview of like who you are and what you do and how you intersect with the performance universe?
0: Great question. Long answer, short answer. So I am a, I'm a Kiwi, um, but I live in Australia, so down under, as we refer to this part of the world. I started life originally as a sports physiotherapist and then evolved into a whole lot of other things around that, especially um, working a lot around breathing-related problems, particularly from a from a mechanical dysfunction perspective, less so about the respiratory pathology side. I, I did a couple of years in a hospital on that side of it. And then around all of the breathing work, there was obviously a lot that was around um, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, a lot that was driven by sympathetic nervous system type stuff. So that took me down that whole arena, I guess, of human performance, the human stress response and what happens to humans when they are under pressure and their sympathetic nervous system is kicking in and on overdrive. My foray into the high performance world originally started as an international level gymnast, six years on the national team for New Zealand, uh, competed at Commonwealth Games and World Champs. So I think that that was my very first, Can we can unpack all sorts of different things, but that was probably my first exposure to performance as an individual um, in terms of my experiencing of it in a high performance and a high pressure environment. And there's a lot of stories that I can connect from, I guess, where we started in that arena through into what I do now. Uh, These days, though, I work with uh, teams, organisations, individuals in professional sport, corporate, bit of medicine, elite military, where there's a need to perform and execute, I guess, in high-pressure and high-stakes environments, both in the acute moment of executing, but also a lot in the preparation for that, so so that you've actually got that buffer, so that when that high-performance moment or that high-pressure pressure moment hits. You've got the buffer in the system, you've got the skills, you've got the training just to be able to execute.
1: I'm always so fascinated by when people first start becoming aware of the structure around performing under pressure, right? Because there's, there's often a period of time where folks are performing under pressure without really being aware of it. And it's sort of this latent unconscious or subconscious kind of thing where we're we're adjusting for what we're feeling without really being aware of it. Did you first start thinking about this stuff as a performer or an operator yourself as a gymnast, or was it only later that you were really connecting the dots between these things?
0: Oh, I think a little bit of A and B. Certainly it was a really high-pressure environment and for your listeners – I'm sure they're pretty familiar around the toxic and high-pressure environment that gymnastics certainly was globally. Mm-hmm. Typically, tends to still be, you know, a very abusive environment, um, mentally, physically, emotionally. So it was just by default a, a high-threat sort of environment that we were even training and, let alone, you know, competing and performing. And I remember when I was probably in my later years as, a, as an elite gymnast, probably my last three years or so, I had a move that I would do to get up onto the beam, and the beam is 10 centimetres wide, um, so it's a couple of you know a few inches wide so the margin of error is not great it's tiny and 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 it's quite high especially when you're a gymnast you know i'm five foot two so i'm not particularly tall so it it feels a, a long way off the ground and the way i'd actually start my routine was i'd be standing end onto the beam i'd tumble forward land on a springboard with my heels on the end of the springboard now with my back to the beam i'd somersault backwards land on one leg so it was a blind entry you know, somersault land on one leg on something 10 centimetres wide. So it was a move that I could do 10 out of 10, no problems in training. I could do it 10 out of 10 perfectly in a competition that it wasn't, you know, the stakes weren't high. But if it was a big competition, I'd literally be on the beam and then, you know, half a second later, I'd be on the ground somehow, you know, because my balance was just slightly off enough that I couldn't stay on the beam. And it cost me um, the chance to compete for a medal at a, at a very big international competition. And I worked with a sports psychologist. I did all of the traditional, you know, visualization, positive self-talk, you know, all of those traditional sort of model things, but I just couldn't crack it. And I think I got to a point where then my fear around it failing in the big moment, I was almost expecting to fail because I had a learned experience of that. And then there was the personal sense of failure around that. And then there was also the perceived threat, I guess, of feedback from coaches if I failed in that big moment. You know, what blasting was I going to get, I guess, from the coaches if I fell? And so for me, that was really interesting because the beam is probably the event that most gymnasts are most nervous about competing because the margin of error is so small. And the consequence of falling is a big penalty. The difference between you can medal in the event or if you fall once, you might finish you know, at the bottom of the field. So the consequence is very high and it's even worse if that's literally the first event that you're competing for the day because you haven't yet got the nerves out of your system and got yourself that you could actually get a little bit calm um so i experienced it i think as an elite gymnast where i didn't have a solution to that i just thought it was in my head thought i'm just a weak athlete somehow, you know, I was a really good competitor. I would traditionally compete very well in all of the other events. It wasn't like I just couldn't compete. It was just this one particular thing that just got me. But it wasn't until later on, so much later as a professional, once I'd studied biomechanics, you know, understood body timing, understood a lot about respiratory mechanics and what happens, particularly the changes in humans when we're in a high threat environment with the changes to our breathing pattern, and how we become more shallow upper chest, we create more tension through our upper body. That I suddenly realized that what was happening for me is that I had practiced this gymnastics move in a very relaxed state or a relatively relaxed state. And elite performers know their timing and their body position intimately well. You know exactly where to position your body to execute a skill. And then when I was in that high pressure scenario, because of all of the external stuff that was going around, plus my own internal noise, Plus already sitting on a base and foundation of high threat, high stress, high pressure, you know, because of the toxic environment. And then I'd get into the pointy end of my performance, you know, that big moment in competition. The changes that would happen to my physicality, my biomechanics would change, my timing would be off, even so slightly. it was enough that would be the difference between execution and failure. Does that kind of make some sense? And I kind of put this together so many years after I'd actually retired from being a gymnast, which was a real shame. But it's the stuff that we see now in, for example, if I'm doing work with the elite military around firearm accuracy, you know, because of changes to biomechanics and position to an NBA athlete, the difference between a free throw in a high pressure game versus their ability to free throw in a training environment, things like scalpel control for surgeons, for example, around biomechanics and, and upper limb position and those sorts of things.
1: First off, since you all are listening to this on audio, you can't see my totally horrified face as she's describing backflipping onto a a beam that's (laughs) 10 centimeters wide, which is legit terrifying to even hear about, let alone try. So you're saying that we understand our body and the way that our body and mind work together when we practice. That's part of why we practice. And when we are in a really amped up, sympathetic driven system- part of what happens from that is that we naturally change the body position that we exhibit. And that Mm -hmm. innately sort of throws off our sense of self a little bit. Is that, am I reading that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly even just from a pure biomechanics execution perspective. And this is where I think for myself, I've been so privileged to have studied so many different sides of Human performance. You know, my master's thesis was actually in optimizing performance in competitive cyclists by um, changing breathing patterns. Mm. So I've studied the whole physical side of human performance, including as well as physio, which of course you've got all the anatomy and the physiology and the pathology and that side of stuff, but also biomechanics and exercise physiology. But then underlaying all of that is, you know, effectively 20 years of studying and understanding human behavior and with, especially with that human threat response and our deeper emotional sort of self and all of those sorts of things and then you know understanding that as a human we are a whole human you know, we can't separate out all of those pieces and just go. Well, we're just going to change this one thing. We're just going to change this thing. We're just going to change this thing. And typically, what I see, whether it be the athletes or the organisations that I'm working with, is if someone makes a mistake in a high pressure environment, they'll often focus on that mistake and focus on, well, that must mean you don't have the technical ability to execute that technical thing. As opposed to, and you know, like I remember many years ago working with an NBA athlete. Now, his free throw percent in games was was, I think, like low 20s, you know, which is very low. His free throw percentage in in practice was high 70s. There's what we call a closed skill. That shouldn't happen. You know, it's him on the line. He's got control of his setup. He should be able to theoretically execute exactly the same thing. But because as part of our sympathetic nervous system, It'll cue us to start to breathe more into our upper chest. You know, as part of our human fight and flight response, we're theoretically going to need more air for either running or fighting or whatever at every, every, every primal level. So even if we're sitting in a chair and we're not actually exerting ourselves physically, we've still got that neural cue from our limbic system that basically starts to recruit our accessory breathing muscles. You know, if you think about what they are, you know, upper traps, levator scaps, scalenes, you know, pec minor, all of that upper limb musculature, which actually then changes you know in that moment of execution if you're now using muscles in a different way or if you've created tension in your body in a different way your ability to execute the physical skill that you've trained fluidly or calmly or precisely will start to change performers will get kind of mislabeled that that's a problem in their head it's not actually linked to them that hey this is actually a problem you know, that's actually the combination of what changes and what's going on in the head that changes the physical stuff in the body that then changes. And then, of course, you get that vicious cycle and that loop that then goes back up into, you know, up into the limbic system, for example. So, for example, that basketball I was just referring to, for him, he had so much noise going on in his head that when he got onto the, the line, you know, it was, what are my teammates going to think if I miss, you know, he had imposter syndrome, he had contract issues, he had girl issues. So he had in the moment stuff going on, but he also had bigger life stuff going on so that his in the moment was sitting on a platform of already highly elevated. And that was why then when the pressure then really came on his crux moment, it would fall apart.
1: Can you take us through like a 30,000 foot view, like what happens in our body with the human stress response?
0: So in my world, I guess I, I, I typically talk about it very much from a lay person's perspective rather than getting right down into the. You know, I'm not a neuroscientist, right? So basically, uh, you know, there's a couple of changes. So if we're working, basically, there's there's two parts to our to our nervous system. There's our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. And with regards to our sympathetic nervous system, when that gets triggered, so generally when we perceive that there might be a threat to our well-being or our survival, and we have to remember that this is a really deeply hard coded primal response. You know, so in the same way that we've still got you know two knees and two elbows and two eyes, most of us, you know, the evolution through in history, we've still got the same neural hard coding that drives this threat response. And so typically when that kicks in, when we get that sympathetic response kicking in, our heart rate will beat faster. Our breathing will become more shallow in upper chest. So we'll start to recruit all of our accessory breathing muscles. You know, we'll tend to lose our peripheral vision we'll start to shift towards audio exclusion. So we won't necessarily see or hear cues that are going on around us that we typically quite reliant on. For some of just that intuitive read of our scenario, over our situation, our gut will pretty much, our digestive system will pretty much turn off, you know, because at a primal level, we're not worried about digesting the buffalo we just killed if we've got to run away from that lion. And we tend to shift towards very scarcity mindset type thinking, right? So it typically, we will go to more, what if I fail? what if i you know it's it's basically at a primal level don't die but in a modern world of course that shows up as we second guess ourselves you know we are always taking on feedback as a criticism or we become quite defensive when people are Pointing out our faults, you know, we become very me-focused. We tend to shut down. We become more insular. We retreat. We withdraw. Basically, I guess, looking for safety. And I think, you know, we saw that globally. Hey, in 2020, the difference between oh, absolutely, I, I think, you know, that the abundance mindset type, which is more aligned with parasympathetic, you know, the primal human state, the heaps of food, shelter, sunshine, I'm safe. I tend to be more expansive. I can be creative. I can think about my teammates or my tribe mates. You know, I. Can can share. It's very we focused. But as soon as I perceive a threat to my safety or my well-being or something like that, and I become very selfish you know and we saw that globally when there was so much uncertainty no one felt that they were safe you know no one knew what was going to happen and just that degree of retreat selfishness that started to kick in you know and I think we've seen a, we've kind of seen the counter to that here in Australia recently we've had some pretty bad floods where some people have just been devastated and affected and lost everything and many people of course who didn't and so we saw the opposite we saw those who were safe and fine and not affected so there's no imminent threat to them very much. How can I help? How can I give? How can I? But these are these same people that March twenty twenty. Oh, I've got to keep all the toilet paper to myself. Do you know what I mean? So it was just. It's just a fascinating, I think, human experiment yeah. or, or vision of what we do in those two sorts of environments.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that this is such a core underlying theory of what we do at the Emergency Mind Project, which is worth stating out loud and making explicit. Which is that when we think about human performance, when we think about human performance under pressure, we tend to think about it really cerebrally. We tend to think about it mostly mm. in our brain like if only I can 100%. think better then I will actually do things better but the reality is that we work within this context of for lack of a better word the wetware that we have genetically historically and culturally yeah. that we ignore that and think it's only cerebral entirely at our own peril conversely totally. if we're able really to harness that wetware and work with it wow yeah. like what we can accomplish just is astronomically bigger.
0: Well I think that was a mistake I made when I was a gymnast like I think there was lack of awareness at the time. Certainly, lack of awareness on my part. I mean, I was only 16, 17, 18, so I just didn't have life experience. And you know, certainly at that age, you just follow what you're taught. And it appeared that I had a problem under pressure with this particular thing. So the logical thing was work with a psychologist because it must be in your head. But I think we forget that as as human beings, you know, we like to, I guess, believe that we are thinking beings that feel, but actually biologically, we're feeling beings that think right? So we've actually got a whole lot of that around the wrong way. And so typically what we'll see is physiology will often drive thought processes. We typically get mistaken and think it's the other way around, to your point. I had a professional golfer, this will probably, I think, link that story, exactly what you were saying. I was working with him many years ago now, and he had his PGA card up in the U.S., um, lost his card he had a bit of form slump he couldn't make the cut and mm-hmm. moved back home to li- li- living with his family and he'd been working with a sports psychologist for probably about eight years prior to him coming to me. you know to try and crack this inability to perform I guess on the big stage and he was brilliant in practice like his his, his drive was phenomenal his swing was just magical you know very very talented player And his psych had actually asked him to come see me about a year before he finally did. And golfers are very polite athletes, you know, so they usually keep their word. Now he came in that morning and he said, look, I need to tell you, I've made the decision this morning. I'm done with golf. I just can't crack this, but I made this appointment. I thought I should keep it. And he goes, but to be honest, he goes, and he had come to see me specifically for some help with his breathing. And he said, but to be honest, he goes, I don't need to learn this breathing crap. He said, because the like has been using it for, you know, for eight years and it makes no difference. And I said, brilliant. I said, how have you been taught to use breathing to control your state in that high pressure moment? And he said, well, as part of my pre-shot routine, I step off the ball. I take three nice, calm breaths to set my state. I step in, I address the ball, I play my shot. And I said, excellent. I said, how many shots in a pro round? And he looks at me like I'm a bit of an idiot. And he goes, well, sort of 70. Like, okay, how long are you on the course for? And he was like, well, four to four and a half hours. I said, brilliant. I said, so what you're telling me is of the four and a half thousand breaths you're going to do in that whole pro round, 210 of them are designed to, in inverted commas, set your state, but the other 99.6%, you're leaving completely to chance. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he was like, oh, he goes, I haven't really got this breathing stuff so well sorted, have I? I said, not at all. I said, so for him, what was happening, right? Is that again, he would practice his shots, you know, in practice and training, really relaxed you know, so he knew his timing intimately well with his whole upper body, but then he'd get into that moment where now it was, I have to make this shot. And if I miss the shot, I'm going to miss the cut. So all of that head noise that was spinning in his head in the moment, self-doubt, his head demons, his insecurity, his whatever, you know, whatever his self-medicating behaviors were that we were actually also adding to the mix. And again, that acute moment sitting on that foundation of high arousal and high threat and high pressure because... Am I in debt? Have I can I support my family? You know, I've been on the road, I'm fatigued, I'm exhausted. You know, there's all of that sort of stuff going on for him, right? So that in that acute moment, all of that noise would again change his breathing pattern. He'd get tighter through his upper body. So now his home biomechanics of his swing completely changed. Sure. And something like golf, right? The club face only needs to hit the ball one degree different. And the ball's going to go somewhere completely unintended. Mm-hmm. So a tiny, and this is where we see like the tiniest little change to timing can have a pretty significant and pretty impactful negative outcome and so for him he, he kind of looked at me and because I could pull that into and describe to him how biomechanically and physiologically this was stuff happening for him in his body yeah there was a whole lot of noise and lifestyle stuff that was going on but the solution actually wasn't let's fix it in your head because sometimes mm. you can't think your way out of that thing. Right. You actually need something. And this is, you know, I I get kind of challenged where there's a lot of focus at the moment around breathing, you know, for a controlled state, whether that be box breathing, Wim Hof, you know, there's all sorts of theories and things that people do. And I'm like, that's awesome. But actually awesome insofar as I think is it gives people a circuit breaker. Right. right. But but think about that golfer is that 210 out of four and a half thousand breaths, that's not going to be a big impact. It's actually all of the other breaths that he's doing that are problematic for him, <laughs> you know, if he's operating all the time at a highly elevated state. Because the thing with breathing that we tend to forget is that the sympathetic nervous system, right, you'll get that cue from brain down to, you know, all sorts of stuff in the breathing, you know, uh, physiology, but particularly think breathing mechanics. So you'll get that efferent feedback from the brain saying, oh, breathe up a chest you're about to, you're, it's go moment, you're about to fight or run or do something, but we need more air. But you also get feed forward. So you get afferent feedback back from the accessory muscles, back up into the limbic system that actually effectively cues you know, oh, Rachel's breathing like someone who's under threat or under danger all of the time. There must be a lion somewhere. Stay on red alert. So when you've got someone who by default has changed over time and most of our high performers who, you know, first responders, military, I don't think I've met a doctor yet who breathes well by default unless they've done specific <laughs> breath work, you know, <laughs> is that they're basically queuing all the time, you know, because of their default breathing pattern. So how they breathe when they're not thinking about breathing, they're cuing sympathetic drive just because of physiological input up into the brain. Does it kind of make sense? Oh, okay.
1: Like Sorry. so much wow. No, no, <laughs> this is so much wow going on right now as I'm thinking about this. So, so I want to reiterate again, to make sure that I, that I really consolidate this a little bit. So what you're highlighting is the dual direction communication between our body and our brain as it plays out in our physiology, specifically around the parasympathetic-sympathetic sort of boundaries, and specifically mm-hmm. saying that while we might focus on the breath or two before we do a technique, what matters immensely is the overall integral sort of of how I'm breathing and how I'm cueing my system throughout the day or the shift or, or really even my life. Am, yeah. am I reading that right?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And obviously, the breathing's just l- literally one component of that whole threat response, right? But can you imagine if you've got someone who's been on shift? You know, let's say they were running like, Let's say they woke up and they had young kids to get off the, you know, school or whatever, or they had a partner, whatever. Like you start your day and you're kind of rushing, and then you're sitting in traffic, and then just because of that, if you're reactive to your environment, you know, that's cueing sympathetic, and you're probably, you know, for your listeners, catch yourself next time you stop at the traffic lights and just note what you're doing. You know, if there's mm. a fair chance your shoulders are up. You might be holding your breath. You know, you're know. you certainly probably breathing upper chest and you've probably got your, your gut locked on in tension. You know. So if that's actually how you're starting your day, in inverted commas, your relaxed state, and that's before you walk into your work environment and then it's go, 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 demand, 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 people asking, people needing stuff, boom, 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 right? That starts to have such an accumulative ramping up of the sympathetic nervous system before you even then hit that critical moment. So when I'm describing this visually, if I had sort of some some visuals that I could show you, you know, describe it in words, obviously, for your listeners being audio, but imagine on sort of one side of the page, there's sympathetic nervous system. On the other side of the page, there's parasympathetic and all of the, the ways that that shows up for someone in real life. So let's forget the medical jargon of, you know, elevated heart rate and breathing right and whatever. Let's just think about, you know, gut issues, you know, brain fog, you know, poor focus, poor vision, auditory exclusion, some of those sorts of things, right? Versus on the karma state, hey, I can be in flow state. I'm in my intuitive, I'm sensing and feeling and being aware of all those subtle cues because My expanse can handle that subconsciously. I can take in all of those sensory things that are happening around me without having to consciously be aware of it, but I can process it. You know, fluid motions, good breathing, slow heart rate, good emotional regulation, all of those sorts of things. And in the middle, I draw a squiggly line, you know, and the squiggly line basically being because you can't be in both of those states exactly the same time Mm -hmm. because it's opposite effects on everything. Okay, so we tend to fluctuate all the time between sympathetic, parasympathetic through our day, through our week, through, our, you know, whatever. But because we have traditionally become more used to operating in the high pressure, high, just go, 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 you know, there's always demands, there's deadlines, there's stuff to juggle and do. As humans, we now tend to operate more and sympathetic more of the time and and, and degrees of it, but we'll still kind of fluctuate. And then if we have a red line, which is basically your threshold, you know, every human has a threshold that says, as long as my squiggly line or my arousal state, I guess, stays below my... Red line. None of the negative versions of that will show up. I'll still feel. Hey, I'm feeling up today, right? It's it's a big moment. I'm noticing a change in my arousal, but it doesn't push us over our red line where then we start to make mistakes because we misread situations or we get clumsy or we can't think clearly or you know whatever we make poor decisions. And most of our high performers, and it doesn't really matter what environment, unless they've done specific training in this area around knowing how to perform and execute and manage that high-pressure environment, right? From especially from a physiological control perspective. There's no buffer in the system for things to go wrong. People are redlining just in a normal day-to-day life, right? And so there's not a whole lot of buffer. Does that kind of make some sense? And if you think about all the things that will accumulate to driving that arousal state up in the first place you know poor sleep classic one right high sugar diet you know a lot of caffeine in the diet shallow breathing is one of the given the twenty thousand breaths that we'll do in a day you know if that's an upper chest pattern by default man that's a whole lot of queuing into the limbic system around what state we're in just life issues you know money issues finances relationship stuff travel shifts you know all those sorts of things uncontrolled what I call uncontrolled reptile brain like that constant worst case scenario you know you know as humans if we don't actually know what the outcome is going to be of something we usually always imagine worst case scenario the survival instinct right absolutely if we heard rustling in the bushes, you know, thousands of years ago, we actually had to respond as if that was the lion and then decide it was only the wind rather than going, ah, oh, it's just the wind, it's all good. And actually, uh-oh, it was a lion and now it's all over, right? Mm-hmm. So again, it's an instinct. And think about how many new people, you know, especially, you know, in your world with medicine, you know, you get relative new grades or you get people in a new rotation. You get people coming into environments that they're not familiar with. That fear of the unknown is a, tr- is a huge trigger for that threat response.
1: I'm thinking as you're saying this about what it was like putting ourselves back in the beginning of the COVID pandemic where, you know, things were so new and so different. And there's so much stress about, is this, is this thing going to kill me? Right. And you're wearing, you're wearing PPE gear. You're not familiar with there's new protocols and new things around sort of how to set up what you're doing. And then baseline is so much higher stress-wise than what you've been used to. And now you try to do a procedure on top of that. Like you try to intubate somebody, which at the best of times is a challenge thing and now you're yeah. sort of in this very opposite this very different zone which yeah. I, I guess i just want to say that explicitly like the model that you're using here which is your baseline stress level and then your moment to moment stress level on top of that and the yeah. way that our body mind connection and efferent afferent systems and breathing as sort of the key to all of that plays into it is a is a really Like, this is wonderful. I hadn't thought of it in exactly the way you're describing it like this. And I love this. How much time and energy can I devote to lowering my general threat state to create a larger buffer so that when I perform in these ultra high stress moments, I'm much more capable than I would be otherwise.
0: I mean, the reality is for most high stakes environments, there's not actually a whole lot of time in that really quick moment to think through all your strategies to control your state. Right. And, you know, one or two breaths or, you know, a a two second step back pause, you know, like whatever it is, man, that's only just going to take the edge off. Maybe Mm -hmm. if you're already in such a high elevated state, it's like putting a drop of water on a fire.
1: Right. Which is better than a drop of gasoline on the fire.
0: <laughs> well, that's true. But which you know, some like people sometimes will actually, the choice that we have a yeah, yeah. hundred, I was going to say some people will choose the gasoline, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's definitely some skills and strategies that you use. And we talk about some of these, if you like a little bit later, you know, in the podcast in a sec, but there's st- certainly skills and strategies you can use in that moment to uh, basically I call it a get out of jail strategy. You know, you've crossed red line and now you need to get out of that situation. And in terms of a state control you know, reaction. But the most effective get out of jail card is don't end up in jail in the first place. Because if you don't actually get in jail, you don't need those strategies to get out. Now, I think there's always going to be scenarios. And I think we can absolutely imagine that in military, in law enforcement and firefighters, um, and certainly in, in emergency medicine scenarios where a human is going to be pushed to their absolute peak i guess of what is humanly capable and in a, in a high pressure scenario right and so i think certainly in those scenarios men people are going to be redlining and i think sometimes it's it's almost inevitable right but i think we push ourselves into that state day to day so unnecessarily because of so many other things that we don't even think about through our normal day-to-day stuff, you know, and even, you know, even things around fear of failure, fear of not being good enough, you know, lack of confidence, feeling unprepared, imposter syndrome, all of those things. If you think about that at a really deep level from a human threat response is, is all queuing into what if I die, you know, again, at a really deep primal level, you know, what is the consequence of this? It is a primal human failure was literally a death sentence. If I fail at this task of getting away from this lion and it wins, It's all over for me. Now, the downside of that is as modern humans, we, you know, so over, I guess, overblow the importance of failure, in inverted commas, different if it's a life-death situation. You know, I understand that. But certainly for, you know, for me as an athlete, if I fell off the beam, no one was dying. But at a deep primal level, it's so cued to me around failure means something really bad is going to happen. So it's highly threatening. So a really quick shift we can make even in thought processes for that, right, is I can imagine Think about that intubation. So, what would someone who's not comfortable or familiar think about that? Maybe if it's their first time or they've had some bad experiences, they may be more likely thinking, "Don't stuff this up." You know, mm-hmm. if you do this, the patient's going to die. Or, you know, do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of quite that don't die thinking, that right, scarcity exactly. mindset thinking, as opposed to that. More curiosity mindset around, I'll often flip that in sport to, I wonder how fast I can go. I wonder how well I can do this. What are my processes that I just need to execute on this, 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 and this? And if I do those things, I'm far more likely to actually be successful in the thing. Does that kind of make some sense? And I don't know what what or how they teach you to think about, think through those processes in medicine and some of those acute scenarios, but there's what you get taught and there's what people often default to thinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, this
1: is, this is so so true and so topical. So when you were talking earlier about the uh, your work with that one move onto the beam, you hit something that that I think connects these two thoughts, which is that you were describing how you didn't hit it once or twice. And then you started getting in this catastrophe mode where you're like, I can't hit this. Okay. And it went from, I didn't hit that one to, I can't hit this. And that went to, I'm not a person that can hit this. And that went to, I'm a failure as a human being. And that sort 100%. of failure cycle, that catastrophic failure cycle is something that we obviously see a lot in emergency medicine also, especially when you're doing these ultra high stakes moves, right? So it's very common to have somebody who's learning how to intubate go from, I didn't get that intubation the way I wanted it to, to I can't do it, to I can't do anything, to like, I should just quit and fail. And the problem is that what you need to do is rebound smoothly and quickly from that one slight miss and get the intubation on the second try because the person still needs a breathing tube, just like they did a minute ago, right? And you (laughs) you don't have the time to sort of be in a catastrophic cycle, right? You have to rebound and get the second one and pivot. Yeah. Yeah, And so I'm so fascinated by how do we interrupt these growing failure cycles? And what do we do for ourselves in those moments to sort of short circuit that whatever machinery that is in our brain that causes us to go down the I'm a terrible human pathway?
0: Yeah. Oh man, there's so many layers to to all of that with answering that question. I think in the acute moment, so just in the same way we talked about breathing cues, sympathetic nervous system, like I can almost guarantee that you know, that doctor in that moment is probably holding their breath Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, you know, which is going to ramp everything up even more. But also if we have very tunnel vision, that's going to cue sympathetic drive because if a threat is right in front of us, then it's an imminent threat. You know, if the threat's actually up on the horizon somewhere, at a primal level, we've got time to sort that out. That we, They didn't have firearms way back then. Do you know what I mean? So we had time to run or flee or do whatever we wanted to do. So one of the things you can do straight away is actually just lift your eyes and, t- and try to take three breaths into your diaphragm. People often get taught, take three deep breaths, right? Well, if those three deep breaths are all with your big upper chest, man, you've just ramped up that sympathetic drive even more, Four. right? And so it's actually, they don't have to be big breaths. It's actually, can I just... Relax my shoulders, lift my eyes, take even if you only get time for two breaths into my belly, or at least start breathing, is probably a a good step for some people, you know, (laughs) and then actually have what your next, what is your next first action step to do? In terms of, you know, whatever the procedure is, it's, okay, do this thing. And if I concentrate on doing that thing, that's at least going to short circuit my brain. And you have to have that mental discipline to not allow yourself to go down that route of, I'm a failure, I suck. Oh no, if I miss this next one, then the person's really going to be in trouble. You know, because spiraling on those thought processes still doesn't solve your problem, right? So I was down with some of our really new uh, elite military guys and we were talking about for those guys who are training to be medics and even talking about some of the first time how nervous they were and anxious they were about the first time if they actually needed to use some of the procedures in the field when they've got a teammate down who's reliant on them being able to execute and there's still you know life fathers you know it's chaotic there's stuff going on and so we're just talking through that scenario and then literally the next week I was with a professional football team and I was just listening to some of the verbal feedback that was happening on the field when players made mistakes and it was really abusive you know there was one or two particular guys in particular who was like oh you effing idiot you know what are you doing you dropped." the board to do it. It was really, you know, and I kind of thought through the two scenarios that were put so closely together in that. And I was like, imagine if for that medic, you know, he had a senior over his shoulder saying, what are you doing? If an idiot, where'd you learn to do surgery? You know, and, and was just kind of berating him in that way that's going to have a really different response in terms of how quickly the brain has to try and process and go what am i hearing i need to defend myself and push back on that because no i'm not an idiot and it kind of gets sidetracked on all those noise right but imagine if that senior had just said to "Clamp that artery like just a really clear clean instruction that gives me a next action to do i do that thing and because i do that thing i start to actually get a you know the, the momentum starts moving at least in some sort of positive direction yeah that actually pulls my brain back down into, okay, now I've actioned. I've slowed my thoughts. And then the next process, next process, next process actually starts to to come in. Thinking about that footballer, like imagine if the feedback had been real good, got your back, strong hands. Do you know what I mean? Like Something very action orientated that moves me forward because in that critical moment, telling me I'm an idiot or me telling myself I'm an idiot doesn't solve my problem. It doesn't give me the next thing that I need to do right now. So I think to your point about that sort of scenario, there's our own self-talk in that moment, but it's also being aware in the broader team of what sort of feedback are we giving and how well are we supporting that individual? You know, there's time to do the hot wash later. You know, I'm not talking about it always has to be, you know, rainbows and unicorns and crystals and fairies, right? But literally in that acute moment, the negative or the abusive or the whatever feedback criticism isn't going to help me in any way. I need someone who's going to speak calmly, who can actually give me the next action or the next thing or even if they can't tell me what to do. It's hey, hey, you've got this. You know, you've got this slow down. You've got this, like whatever it is, because remember my brain in that moment is probably in the washing machine. I'm not thinking logically because if I've hit my red line, you know, my smart decision brain literally goes offline, right? My executive processing, it's gone offline. My rational thinking, it's gone offline. I'm literally in survival mode right now in the in terms of my head in that moment. So having someone that can actually just go, hey, you're good, we've got you. It's amazing how ramp things down one or two notches, anything that's going to get me under my red line in that moment is going to be critical. But then in the bigger picture of that, think about what gets set up around, I was talking to a trauma surgeon, you know, a month or so ago, and we're talking about the impact of M&Ms, you know, like if, if there's a really big you go, wow, like, how is that possibly good? How in that in the bigger picture development of some, I understand they're important, but does that person who's up on stage defending the case actually end up walking away from that going, okay, I feel like there's a way forward for myself. Yes. Things happened or whatever. Right. But I've got some strategies and some structures and where I need to learn and where I need to grow. And I've got the support of my peers as opposed to I was on stage for an hour or so just being attacked by my peers and made all of the mistakes and everything that went wrong and, whatever you know for me that was like the being the being the gymnast where all i ever got from my coach if i fell was the negative berating and that you're useless you're a waste of time you know what you know all of that sort of negative stuff we didn't actually ever have a conversation around pressure and how to handle that and what was Mm -hmm. happening and what did i actually need to be able to get better at being able to do that thing in the heat of the moment that probably would have been a helpful conversation (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So you're you're hitting the the sort of way that conceive of the different levels and layers of this, right? There's like the individual, like me as the operator, I as the operator, what can I do to change my own? Physiology and performance. There's the Mm -hmm. team, right? What can my team feed back and forward to me, right? So if they Mm -hmm. see me, as you put it so eloquently, like in the washing machine, or as other guests on the show have put it in the basement or whatever it is, right? Like if they see me underwater, like how Mm -hmm. can they help support me to perform at my best? And how can we see those cues in each other and reset? And then at a structural level, when you think about MM and the way that our room is structured, how can we set ourselves up for success as opposed to failure? And some of that yes. is you sort of make those three points and then you combine that with what do you do on shift and what do you do off shift? And then you get totally. this incredible matrix of like where we're able to really alter the way that we perform under pressure.
0: Yeah. And I think to your point about success and failure, you know, the thing we have to remember is that fixing broken doesn't by default give us awesome So we quite often get focused on what were the mistakes, let's fix the mistakes, as opposed to, well, actually, have we set that individual, that organisation, that team, have we actually intentionally set them up for success? And what does that look like and what does that take? And that means, obviously, the technical, tactical training, but also, this literally the skill, you know, and it is a skill and it is skill training around understanding physiological response, what changes in your mind and your body with high pressure situations. Understanding that that is really normal. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean you're not cut out for this. This is a normal, every human has this response. And here's how we actually teach you how to roll with it and use it and control it and those sorts of things. And I remember when I first started working. This this course that I was running with the military, we had you know forty four odd guys in the room who've you know the. Past selection for special forces are some of the most mentally and emotionally resilient humans in, you know, in the country at the time, and I s- had this conversation with them around what happens, you know, physiological stress response, and this is what you feel. And I said, you know, I'm sure that there was a whole lot of times through, or, or at least a few occasions through selection, that you were terrified, that you were feeling this response, that you probably really self-doubted. You know, there's going to be things you got, you're going to get asked to do in your next phase of training, and then. On the job, once you're you know in a unit that you're going to feel terrified about, you're going to have this response. You going you you might even lose bowel control in certain mo- you know scenario. Like who knows, you know? But please understand, it's really normal, and this is how we're going to teach you to control it, and those sorts of things. And you know the look of relief on the face of every single one of those guys sitting in the room, who you know, probably up to that point had looked around their teammates and gone, I'm the only one feeling this. Everybody else has got that mask on and looks like they're all good to go. So I mustn't be cut out for this because I'm feeling all of this stuff inside, you know, either physically feeling this stuff or in my head feeling this, you know, this negative self-talk. So I mustn't be cut out for this and think about, you know, same, same, same in medicine, right? And then that self-doubt starts to creep in. And then that self-doubt starts to undermine confidence. And then I'm actually going to start to practice whatever I'm doing, you know, a little bit more defensively or a little bit more, you know, fear-driven or whatever, because I'm not Does that kind of make sense? As opposed to if we just normalize the conversation and go, hey, you're a human being. And by default, because you're a human being, unless you're probably a psychopath, you're probably going to have these experiences and situations that are outside of your comfort zone. And just because you're outside your comfort zone doesn't mean it's dangerous or bad. It probably used to as a primal human, you know, because if you were outside your comfort zone, outside of your cave, outside of your safety network of your tribe, yeah, possibly things are more likely to go bad. Right. But as modern humans, we misinterpret that every time we're outside of our comfort zone and that response kicks in, Uh oh, something's about to go bad. No, it just means you're outside your comfort zone, but that's where magic happens. Right. And so it's being comfortable to almost have, when we're learning things, every time you do a new procedure, anytime you're in a new environment, anytime a global pandemic is, I don't know, you know, it's kind of like, hey, (laughs) this is really normal that this is, you're going to feel all of this stuff. All right. And it doesn't mean that you're a weak human. It doesn't mean you're. You're a failure. It doesn't mean you're not cut out for this. Hey, this is just normal. But by the way, here's how we, you know, give you acute skills in the moment, and here's some other stuff that you can do to front load so you take the edge off. But sometimes situations are still just going to suck, you know, and going to have to dig and go through that tough time. And then, of course, we have to be aware of, you know, the parasympathetic backlash out the back end of that you know that crash that we get out the back end but that's probably a whole nother conversation but just normalizing some of those conversations I think really helps people to go oh this is just another thing that happens in the same way that if I'm really hungry and I haven't eaten for however long and my blood sugar levels drop this this thing happens to me blah 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 cool same as this physiological threat or stress response. But we push it so far under the covers. And I think, unfortunately, also in in scenarios like medicine, if you think about what it takes to get into med, you're a super high achiever. You know, you've generally done very well at school. You know, you don't want to show weakness. You don't want to show, it's highly competitive. So you don't really want to show any sort of indication that, hey, you might be not, not even struggling, but you might have some of these, just this normal response. We think it must indicate that we're weak or they've someone's got the edge on us or, you know, whatever. So you're very good at putting your mask on. And I don't mean the physical, you know, N95. I mean, literally the metaphorical mask that says, I'm not going to show that I've got any of that stuff going on. So what do you think that happens to all the teammates around? The same thing as those elite military guys, right? Oh man, everyone else looks like they've got their stuff together. I haven't because I'm feeling all this stuff. And then that starts to really mess with people's heads.
1: Yeah. Which feeds obviously. directly back into what we were talking about at the beginning about sort of your baseline level of stress, right? Because we set up this self-reinforcing echo chamber of stress and we allow ourselves to get caught by this fantasy that we're the only ones feeling anything. We're the only oh, ones yeah. whose heart goes up when we're feeling stressed and everybody else yeah. is like a, you know, stone cold block of ice or something.
0: Totally. Uh,
1: I wish we were better at this. And I, and I want to be better at this about leading the team that way and exploring sort of the, what is normal? And then how do you process normal? And then how do you mm. really process the extreme on top of that better version of normal? I wish we could go back in time and give myself this talk when we were starting the pandemic. I think I, I think I would have really benefited <laughs> from that in, in a lot of ways.
0: I was just gonna say the other side of stuff I'm seeing with colleagues that are, you know, have ridden through the pandemic here in Australia is that, you know, effectively that parasympathetic backlash out the back end. Do you know what I mean? Where they've just been go, 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 go for months and couple of years now really. And the guilt that some of them are saying that they feel when they've got a weekend off and they cannot get off the couch, you know, because they are just exhausted or they feel like they have no motivation to do anything, you know? And and I think even normalizing the conversation around that too, to go, hey, we don't like the fact that you're in that situation, but please understand it's very normal that you're in that situation given what you've been through. And in the same way as if you just run you know, if you think about it from the physical side of it, if you've been something through something physically exceptionally taxing, you're going to feel exhausted after the back end of that. You're going to, if you've been training for marathons and you've done a whole bunch of marathons, you're not going to go out running, you know, the day after a marathon because you're not, your, your brain and body is going to go, there is no way I'm letting you go back in that situation. It needs time to recover and to reboot and to put some reserves back in. And I think just something sometimes having that compassion, you know, with ourselves is actually really important.
1: Rachel, as we sort of, very reluctantly draw this to a close because I think there's so much depth to learn from this. Can you give us just for a moment uh, some sort of an antidote? <laughs> right which is a tall order but you know we're talking about how most of the time when we're under stress we're breathing through our upper chest only and we're in a posture that is reinforcing our sympathetic drive and so i'm thinking about when i'm on a shift tomorrow and i have a chance to work with my residents and my nursing staff and my everybody for a minute or two before the shift really starts what do i remind them of what cues do i give them over the course of the shift? other than just like, hey, are you breathing, right? Which is a good (laughs) start. right? What cues do I give them to help them break some of that cycle and really breathe and structure their movement in a way that brings down the state of anxiety?
0: Yeah, I think just having a little, I call it a little body scan. You know, so we talked before about the get out of jail cards. If you think about the difference between parasympathetic and sympathetic, some of the key things that we have some control over is where I look, what I think and where I breathe to. And so I'll typically get someone just to, as often as they can. And, and whether we use a visual trigger, maybe it's a phone, maybe it's something in the environment, maybe it's every time you touch a stethoscope, like as something that you do multiple times through a shift, almost as part of routine, is that you do this body scan where you just lift your eyes and you might just look up on, either onto the, you know, where the ceiling and the roof meet, or you'll just be aware of your peripheral vision, try to bring that back online. Three breaths into your diaphragm. They don't have to be big or deep or long, just Turning your diaphragm on is is very helpful. And one gratitude thought. And again, it's not about crystals and unicorns, but it's just having that difference in if you're running away from that lion as a city, you're not thinking, oh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity, right? You're thinking, holy crap. So just something that is, I'm actually really grateful for the opportunity to help change someone's life today. Or, you know, whatever it is, simple little cue. And sometimes if you really Dragging the bottom of the barrel, it's I'm grateful that I've got a job or I'm grateful that I've got a bed I can sleep in, or whatever it is. You know, sometimes if you're having a really tough day, it can be hard to find that thing. But you want to have something that you've almost pre-prepared and a really quick little body scan where you just do that, all right? And you do that multiple times through a shift. All that does is it just actually helps push the reset button constantly around. Can I just take my Arousal state down one or two notches on an intentional and a strategic way rather than waiting for that go moment where, as I said to you before, it's often almost too late. But I'd actually also suggest that they listeners, you know, think about starting to use that just routinely through the day. You know, so you stop at the traffic lights or that idiot cuts you off in traffic or you've got a screaming kid or you've got, you know, a, a, a something through the day that normally you would just be quite reactive to and you just wouldn't even think about what have I allowed my physiology and my emotions and my reactions to do with that. you're just training yourself I guess just to constantly do that body scan, push reset, start to learn to control your reactions to things rather than reacting to the stuff that's happening around you because you want to practice those skills and strategies more in the lower threat environments so that it's more automatic for you in some of those high threat responses. I think also in terms of your team for yourself on shift, being aware, of course, that, you know, when you're up and busy and, and pressured, and even if it's just a time pressure, because you're on the go, boom, 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 and you're rushing around and your shoulders are tight and your breathing is a bit tense, whatever, you know, again, as, as, as humans, we read body language. And so your teammates are going to read that off you. Oh, Dan's looking like he's under pressure and stressed. Sometimes just dropping your own shoulders, just breathing calmly, you know, as you're giving your brief before A shift or whatever you think about, you know, what tone of voice are you using? Where are you breathing to? What tension are you holding in your face? Where are your shoulders? Even if it's not what you're feeling in your head, what you give away through your body subconsciously is going to cue somebody else's physiology. Does that kind of make some sense? Perfect,
1: perfect, perfect. Here's
0: a little, a last one liner: When in doubt, breathe out. That's actually quite a good one. (laughs) I love that. When in doubt, doubt, breathe out. out.
1: Phenomenal, okay. Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's like just an absolute joy to talk to you, and I, I already want a round two of this. There's so many other questions I have moving forward, and I'm deeply appreciate it.
0: Oh, Dan, I just I hope there's something in there that that helps someone. Hey, but thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a joy to connect with you.
1: All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something, and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own, and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.